0: Think on your feet for our fast and curious 5K, a one-of-a-kind race, hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org events.
1: A new book reveals the origin stories of some of Chicago's iconic foods. I'm Sasha Ann Simons, and this is Reset. Chicago-area cuisine has way more to offer than deep-dish pizza, Italian beef, and ketchup-less hot dogs. But did you know the city is actually home to a lot of new food creations? A new book tells the stories behind Chicago's top food inventions, and it's called Made in Chicago, Stories Behind 30 Great Hometown Bites. To get the delectable details, we are talking to authors Monica Ng, who's a Chicago reporter for Axios and spent many years here at WBEZ, and David Hammond, a writer for New City and other publications. So David, let's talk about the concept for this book. It's not organized around famous chefs or around specific restaurants or cuisines. It's all about the quintessential Chicago dishes and foods, things like mild sauce, the hibarito, Italian beef, and much, much more. So Why would you choose that as the organizing principle? You won't find
0: any famous chefs, that's true. Uh, No famous chef probably made many of these foods, with the possible exception of shrimp de and chicken Vesuvio, which have been around for 100 years. A lot of these other dishes are of more recent vintage, and they're made by small little mom-and-pop places all over Chicagoland, with a seeming concentration on the south and southwest sides. Uh, We were looking for foods that were unique to the city and had to be served at more than one location. That is, it couldn't be a restaurant special, you know, like chocolate-covered pork chops or something like that. (laughs) It had to be something that was served at a lot of places, which would reflect the popularity of the dish in the local community. And a lot of these dishes seem to have a lot of local neighborhood love. Uh, They may not be known outside the neighborhood. Sometimes in the same zip code, people on one side don't know about, say, sweet steak on the other side of Morgan Park, for instance.
1: Yeah, it reflects the diversity, right? As diverse as Chicago can be. You recognize though in the book that there are certain foodie themes that we have in this city. Can you talk about some of those?
0: I would say unusual, unexpected combinations of ingredients, like for instance, mother-in-law, which is kind of like a hot dog, but instead of the hot dog, it's a Chicago corn roll tamale, or taffy grapes, my personal favorite in the book, (laughs) Mixing grapes and frosting, or or uh, white chocolate, and nuts. Again, not a predictable or oft-seen combination of flavors.
1: Yeah, and Monica, I love that you included a story with every entry, right? During your time here at WBEZ, we knew you as kind of the local food encyclopedia. Yeah. I mean, even in my time since being here at WBEZ, Monica, I, I used to have food ideas for this show. And the first person people would ask me to, have you asked Monica? <laughs> oh, right. I haven't. Uh, go to her. Yeah. She'll know. So what stories did you learn, I, if you learned anything, while researching this book that was actually new
2: to you? Well, I loved learning the story of the pizza puff. First of all, I didn't know it was invented here.
1: The pizza pot? The Pizza Puff. Oh, the Pizza Puff.
2: Yeah. And, um And it turns out it was uh, an Assyrian an Christian family from Iran at the turn of the century. Uh, they came here to uh, run the hot dog buggy business. And um, and then one day when they were um, going to collect from, from one of their clients who had been renting hot dog uh, push cart uh, equipment— the, the widow said, I'm sorry, my husband died. All I've got is this tamale recipe. So he got this recipe for corn roll tamales. He started the Illinois Tamale Company. And then um, as they were bringing tamales to hot dog stands, because that's where you sell them, of course, in Chicago, they said, we're getting killed by the pizza business. What can you do to help us here? And so his grandson's. Made the pizza puff. They took a flour tortilla, they put some stuff in it, they folded it, and they made it so that it wouldn't blow up in the French fry fryer and you could serve a pizza product at the hot dog stand.
1: So there's a whole story there. Yeah. Uh, What about you, David? Was there anything that you learned that was new to you?
0: Yes. (laughs) (laughs) The... uh... Italian beef, which most Chicagoans know, and most Chicagoans know that it's unknown outside the Chicago city limits, pretty much. There's sometimes, you know, Joe Mantegna opened a place in L.A., a Chicago food place. They served it there, but that's that's pretty rare. Yeah. So we're talking to uh, Chris Pacelli. We had our book launch, in fact, at Al's Number 1 Beef on Taylor Street. We were talking about the origin of the Italian beef sandwich, and he said... Al's number one started the same way a lot of Italian beef places started in Chicago, and that's as a front for a gambling operation, which I thought was amazing. It was? He, uh, Al Ferrari, the uh, gentleman who actually started number one with Chris Pacelli's dad, uh, had gotten out of jail and was looking for something to do, and uh, some buddies of his. Uh, connected guys, let's say, wanted to uh, start a gambling operation. He had the bright idea, why don't we make Italian... I'll make Italian beefs in front, you can have the gambling operation in back, which they did for a while until Pacelli realized, I got a pretty good thing going here. I don't want to blow it by being involved with an illegal operation. Don't want to go back to jail. Uh, So he he struck out on his own and started... uh, El's Barbecue was called because you were cooking over live coals, which they still do at L's number one, but they just use it for the Italian sauce.
1: Interesting. So I want to hear about your process. Did you guys make a list of thirty Chicago dishes and maybe find stories for each of them, or did you just collect stories as you worked and pick the best thirty?
2: Yeah, we had to come Best. up with a really nice uh, round number. So we said, OK, here are 30 that make the cut. They're, they've uh, stood the test of time. They're served in more than one place. They were invented in Chicago. Um, OK, Dave, I've already done a lot of research on these. You've already done a lot of research on these. So let's just cut it right down the middle. It was during pandemic time, so it was all remote. I don't think I, I've even seen Dave's face until, uh, you know, just recently as we yeah, started to promote this. You know, over several years, we we just talked on the phone. Oh, wow. Yeah.
1: So yours, Monica, is the first entry in the book. Uh, Akutagawa? That's is right. That right. Nice pronunciation. Oh, very good. Uh, I've been yeah. working on it. Yeah. Yes, yes. So you mentioned two locations where we can find the dish, right? But talk about how uh, the Chicago style of this dish originated in Wrigleyville.
2: In Wrigleyville. So, um, so after forced internment, many uh, Japanese Americans were forcibly transferred to other parts of the country told you cannot go back to California Chicago was a big place and one of the places they landed was Wrigleyville so there was a huge Japanese American population in Wrigleyville they were told stop being so Japanese and so the Sato family opened up a Hamburger King a hamburger joint you know with meatloaf and you know stuffed peppers but they still had a lot of Japanese American uh, clients including George Akutagawa who would come in and say, hey, can you take some of that hamburger and green pepper and onions and uh, maybe some bean sprouts, throw an egg on top of it. People would say, what's he eating? That looks great. They said, well, there's no name. We'll just call it the Akutagawa. And it actually resembles okonomiyaki or even moko loko, which is sort of a Hawaiian-Japanese-American dish. And so I see it as an opportunity for Japanese-Americans to secretly be Japanese mm. in a place mm. called Hamburger King at a time when they were not supposed to be Japanese. Sounds
1: hilarious, to secretly be Japanese. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh. Uh, there's a recipe for Akutagawa in, in case that folks— want to make it at home. Is that the
2: family recipe? Yes, yes. Uh, the family gave it to me, and they said they actually would cool. get um, they would get requests. Uh, one of the daughters said, you know, I met a woman on a plane. She said, I got to make that for my husband like twice a week because he loved it so much at your family's restaurant.
1: Yeah. And it's not the only recipe that's in this this guidebook. Why did you two decide to include recipes, David?
0: Well, it seemed like a good way to explain in a very concise way the ingredients in each item. Also, some of this stuff is—it's <laughs> fun to make at home. We made taffy grapes at home. We've made pizza puffs too, and I actually think the pizza puffs that my wife Carolyn made were better than what I got, oh, and nice. because she used really high quality ingredients, made, actually made her own flour tortillas, which wow. was a, oh, wow. a, a bridge too far for me, but she was willing <laughs> to do it, um, and they turned out really good. These are can be. There's no reason why any of the dishes in this book can 't be made more deliciously yeah. <laughs> you usually find them on the street, although a lot of them are delicious. Right off the right off the burner.
1: I know it may be difficult, David, but tell us about, you know, a couple of your favorite entries in the well, book. Well, one that I
0: find always strikes a chord with people is Malort. Uh, usually. Yeah. They it's make the, a face just it's, like that. It's, <laughs>
1: the, it's the one of three pages that I have bookmarked here in wow. my copy yeah, of your
0: book. People want to hear about <laughs> What's that. What's the deal with it's, that thing? Well, that's a good question. It's one of those extraordinarily unusual, in fact, maybe unknown in the history of uh American business, that a product is marketed based on its repulsiveness. <laughs> oh, or I've it's,
1: heard so much about it. I haven't tried danger. it yet. Oh, it's time. No. Oh, it's sh- time. It's been two years. I usually I'm bring ready. a bottle
0: with me to interviews like this. I'm sorry I oh, didn't David. this time. I would suggest if you do want to buy a bottle, you get the little like ounce and a half. Because I won't like it? Well, I, I did actually serve it at Easter. <laughs> and, uh, this a mi- Easter? A mi- yes. It got a mixed reception. What it is, it's a, um, it's a bitter beverage. It's made with wormwood. It's very wormwood forward. Wormwood is an herb that grows in a number of different locations, including Sweden, which is where Jepsen, the originator of Malort, came from. Uh, wormwood contains uh, tujone, which is a chemical that was thought to drive people blind and mad and homicidal. There's a guy in France who allegedly drank too much of it and went on a killing spree. Mm. So that's why absinthe, which also contains wormwood, was uh, made illegal in Europe and the United States until relatively recently. Now, Tremaine Atkinson at CH Distillery in Chicago continues the tradition of this spirit by making malort. He's actually gone and found the Swedish malort and uses that. He's tweaked the recipe slightly, and if you've been—I you, don't think this applies to many listeners, but if you've been drinking malort for a while, you'll notice a difference. <laughs> it's a little bit more mellow th- than the old version, but it's still— it's, awful. It's a powerful. Yeah, Monica had her first sip uh, in on studio. On a
2: different TV station, yeah, and, on was, a different radio station. Yeah,
0: she made what we call Malort Face. And if you hashtag, if you look for hashtag Malort Face on Instagram, <laughs> That's a real thing. you'll see pictures of people, probably out-of-towners, and a Chicagoan will say, Hey, can I buy you a, uh, a shot of Malort, Chicago's Own Spirit? And people will be unknowing. People will go like, Oh, yeah, sure. They get it. They sip it. They make malort face. Snap. They get the picture. Goes on Instagram, and they're uh, they're immortalized. Well,
1: I've got reset producers threatening to uh, make the yes. next Food Friday segment all about malort. There you go. Um, as you two were putting together this this book and in these stories, Monica, was there one story that you both absolutely agreed? Okay, this has to make it into the book.
2: Oh, so many. I mean, sweet steak was a big one. Mm-hmm. The, family, the Perkins family that started that, and the Rickett family that started. Um, that has um, uncle remus and um and mild sauce but I think the, the overarching story that I thought was most important was, you know, sadly that Chicago is not just a geographically segregated, but very culturally segregated. That there are dishes on the north side, the south side's never heard of, south side, north side's never heard of. And I, I hate that. And I hope that if anything happens with this book, it brings people together and says, you know what, I'm going to get out of my comfort zone. Uh-huh. I'm going to get out of my neighborhood and I'm going to try all 30 Chicago dishes and it's going to bring me... All over this city, and I'm going to learn about my fellow Chicagoans through the most delicious thing called food.
1: That would be wonderful. Yes. Any dish or any story that didn't make the book?
2: Atomic cake. Wait, wait,
1: I gotta ask what is atomic cake? For those who don't know,
2: it's this incredible South Side cake that has banana and banana cream and strawberry filling and vanilla, and it just looks so Mm. impressive, and it's so delicious. And you get it at bakeries all over the South Side. Uh, We've gotten taken to task. Why is (laughs) Atomic Cake a South Side? Why would you not put Atomic Cake in the book? I think I
0: remember the rationale for that. We We
2: thought, well, I I think you thought it wasn't in more than one place, but but Louisa Chu, my my uh, and co-host, oh boy, she was like, "It's in a million places. What are you crazy?" Um, but yes, it, it will be in Sorry, the next one. Cake. Yes. yes. <laughs>
1: uh, so give us a couple of Chicago dishes uh, or just bites that you would recommend folks try this weekend.
0: Oh, well, taffy grapes would be right at the top of my list. Now, those are found at rather unusual locations. Uh, The Baba Steak and Lemonade places, Harold's Chicken. If you go to any of those places, you'll probably see right next to the register a number of little clamshell plastic cases that contain these taffy grapes, which are simply grapes that have been dipped in uh, white chocolate or icing and then topped with nuts, kind of like taffy apples, or as we call them in Chicago, affy tapples. Same kind of idea, fruit covered in sweetness
1: topped with nuts. Uh, what about you? Any recommendations, Monica? I, I'd
2: say get the hibarito. I'm half Puerto Rican, and it's the most wonderful sandwich in the world, it's a steak sandwich or anything sandwich. But instead of bread, you use deep fried green plantains and smear them with some garlic.
1: <laughs> Monica Ng is a reporter for Axios here in Chicago, and David Hammond writes about food for New City and other publications. Thank you both for joining us. This episode of Reset was produced by Brenda Ruiz, and it was edited by Andrew Merriweather and Meha Ahmed. Are you hungry for more great episodes about food in Chicago? Well, then make sure that you're subscribed to our podcast, where we share interviews with chefs and food writers from across the city. That's all for Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. Have a great rest of the weekend.